Chapter 5. Wages and the Impoverishment of the Working Class Under Capitalism Value of Labour Power and Its Price Under Capitalism, the worker sells his labour power to the capitalist. The capitalist hires the worker and makes him work for him. The worker receives wages. This constitutes the purchase and sale of labour power. But labour power is a commodity of a special kind. The purchase and sale of labour power characterises a relationship between capitalist and worker, between the two basic classes of capitalist society. The value of labour power, as we already know, is determined by the value of the means of subsistence necessary for the maintenance of the worker. It must, however, be kept in mind that the capitalists always try to reduce wages below this limit. Under capitalism, no one is concerned with how the worker lives. He often remains unemployed and starves to death. But even when he obtains employment, his wages are not always sufficient to satisfy his most elementary needs. The value of labour power is determined by the value of the means of subsistence of the worker, but how are the necessary means of subsistence determined? It is quite clear that the means of subsistence of the worker, their amount, their nature, depend on a number of circumstances. Marx points out that, quote, the value of labour is in every country determined by a traditional standard of life. It is not mere physical life, but it is a satisfaction of certain wants springing from social conditions in which people are placed and reared up. End quote. Unlike other commodities, the determination of the value of labour power includes a historical or social element. The normal living standard of the worker is not something that is fixed and established forever. On the contrary, this standard changes with the course of historical development and is different in different countries depending on the historical development of the particular country. Capitalism, however, always tends to bring the living standard of the working class down to an extremely low level. The value of a commodity expressed in terms of money is its price. The price of a commodity, as we've already seen, continuously fluctuates above or below its value. Wages are a special form of price for the commodity labour power. It is evident that the level of wages varies above and below the value of labour power. But in contradistinction to other commodities, the variations here are mainly below the value. Wages, a mask of capitalist exploitation. We've seen that the labour of the wage worker in a capitalist enterprise consists of two parts – paid necessary labour and unpaid surplus labour. But when the worker receives his wages, it's not at all apparent that they cover only necessary labour. 
whereas his surplus labour is appropriated without remuneration by the employer. On the contrary, things under capitalism are represented as if the entire labour of the worker has been paid for. Let us take a miner who is paid on the basis of piecework. For every tonne of coal he mines, he gets, say, one dollar. Working his hardest, he makes barely enough each day to buy his bread. Let him try to point out to the mine owner the injustice of such exploitation. If the latter will feel kindly disposed and desire to talk to his worker at all, he will explain, you get a dollar a tonne. No more is paid at either the neighbouring mines or elsewhere. You get a fair price. Your labour is not worth any more. Try to mine more coal and your wages will be higher. Thus, one gets the false impression that the worker receives the full value which he has earned in working. Let us suppose that a friend of our miner works at a chemical plant nearby. He works under the most injurious conditions for nine hours a day and gets, say, $40 a month. How does he find out that his boss is exploiting him? Let him try to speak to his boss about it, and without any hesitation, he will be answered. You get as much as anyone else would in your place. You get a fair wage. More than this, you do not earn. But if you wish, try working both shifts, and you will get double wages. But in nine hours, you only work out $40 a month. There would be no sense in paying you more. And really, how can the worker know how much value he produces a day for his boss? The nine-hour day is not divided openly so that he can know. This part of the day I worked out my wages and these hours I worked for the boss without being paid. All hours of work are alike. And here he even gets an opportunity to increase his wages, double them, true by doubling his working day. Such a thing can really be confusing. It appears as if the capitalist really pays him as much as he produces in value. Thus, capitalist exploitation is masked. And here, all the forces of the ideological enslavement of the masses come to the boss's aid. The church asserts that the earthly system is established by God and that any thought of changing it is sinful. The capitalist press Science, the theatre, the cinema, the literature and art of the bourgeoisie all mask the issue of exploitation, all try to make things appear as if the enrichment of the capitalists were just as natural and inevitable as the light of the sun on a clear summer day. Quote, the wage form thus extinguishes every trace of the division of the working day into necessary labour and surplus labour into paid and unpaid labour. All labour appears as paid labour. In the corvée, the labour of the worker for himself and his compulsory labour for his lord differ in space and time in the clearest possible way. In slave labour, even that part of the working day in which the slave is only replacing the value of his own means of existence, in which that therefore, in fact, he works for himself alone, appears as labour for his master. 
all the slaves' labour appears as unpaid labour. In wage labour, on the contrary, even surplus labour or unpaid labour appears as paid. End quote from Mark Capital, Volume 1, page 550. Wages and the Struggle of the Working Class Workers began quite early to organise into trade unions, which conducted a struggle to improve working conditions and to curb unlimited exploitation. Wages, as we have seen, are determined by the value of labour power. But in the first place, wages fluctuate considerably, particularly below the value of labour power, and, secondly, the value of labour power itself changes considerably dependent on a number of circumstances. A constant struggle rages between the bourgeoisie and the working class concerning the level of wages. In this struggle, much depends upon the degree of organisation and unity of each side. So long as the workers had not organised trade unions, each capitalist dealt with a scattered mass. The capitalist in such a case, is in an advantageous position in the struggle about wages. If any worker does not agree to the bad conditions of employment, he is discharged, and the employer quickly finds someone to take his place. Matters change when there is a trade union movement. Under such circumstances, the capitalist is not opposed by a scattered mass of unorganised workers, but now has to deal with a union of all, or of the majority, of the workers which presents uniform demands and calls for uniform conditions. Formerly, the capitalist came to an agreement with individuals. Now he has to come to a collective agreement with the trade union. Wages of the workers are usually determined by special rate agreements. The capitalists, of course, find many ways of struggling against the workers, even when there is a trade union. In their turn, they unite in employers' associations. To help the capitalists, those betrayers of the working class, the social democrats, come forward. The trade unions, under their leadership, disrupt the struggle of the workers, act as strike breakers during revolutionary strikes. It is perfectly clear that by means of only an economic struggle on the part of trade unions, the working class cannot free itself from the ever-growing capitalist exploitation, from increasing poverty and destitution. For this purpose, the complete victory of the proletariat, which can be won only by revolution, is necessary. Then, in destroying capitalism, the proletariat destroys class exploitation, the source of its impoverishment. Marx writes as follows with regard to this. Quote, the general tendency of capitalistic production is not to raise but to sink the average standard of wages, or to push the value of labour more or less to its minimum limit. Such being the tendency of things in this system, is this saying that the working class ought to renounce their resistance against the encroachments of capital, and abandon their attempts at making the best of the occasional chances for their temporary improvement? If they did, they would be degraded, to one level mass of broken wretches past salvation. I think I have shown that their struggles for the standard of wages are incidents inseparable from the whole wages system 
that in 99 cases out of 100, their efforts at raising wages are only efforts at maintaining the given value of labour, and that the necessity of debating their price with the capitalist is inherent to their condition of having to sell themselves as commodities. By cowardly giving away in their everyday conflict with capital, they would certainly disqualify themselves for the initiating of any larger movement. At the same time, and quite apart from the general servitude, involved in the wages system, the working class ought not to exaggerate to themselves the ultimate working of these everyday struggles. They ought not to forget that they are fighting with effects, but not with the causes of those effects, that they are retarding the downward movement, but not changing its direction, that they are applying palliatives, not curing the malady. They ought, therefore, not to be exclusively absorbed in these unavoidable guerrilla fights incessantly springing up from the never-ceasing encroachments of capital or changes of the market. They ought to understand that, with all the miseries it imposes upon them, the present system simultaneously engenders the material conditions and the social forms necessary for an economic reconstruction of society. Instead of the conservative motto, a fair day's wages for a fair day's work, they ought to inscribe on their banner the revolutionary watchword, abolition of the wages system. Forms of wages The capitalists pay the workers their wages by various methods. Of all the various forms of wages, two are fundamental. In some cases, the workers receive their pay according to the period of working time, when the wages may be calculated by the hour, day, week or month. This is called the time form of wages, or time wages. In other cases, the worker's pay depends upon the amount of goods he has produced. The worker is paid according to the number of tons of coal he has mined, or the number of metres of calico he has woven, the number of locks he has made, etc. This is called the piecework form of wages. The capitalist system has invented many different forms, sometimes rather complicated ones, of paying the workers. But all these forms are based either on a time or piecework basis, and sometimes on a combination of the peculiarities of both. It may appear at first as if there were nothing in common between the method of paying by time and the method of paying by piecework, that these two forms are entirely different. In reality, it is not so. In the case of time work, in granting the worker a definite weekly wage, the capitalist calculates what work his wage worker would do during that time. If he were not to estimate this, he would soon go bankrupt. It is more important, however, that fundamentally, piecework is really the same as time work. When the rate per piece is set, the amount produced by a worker in an hour, day or week is taken into consideration. That is why piecework also assures the average worker only the bare necessities. Both piecework and time work are only different forms of the purchase of labour power by the capitalist. The form used depends on the circumstances prevailing in the particular industry. Each of these forms has its advantages for the capitalist, dependent upon the circumstances. Time work. 
Time work is the form employed in cases where the employer has no reason for interesting each individual worker, particularly in the production of as great a quantity of goods as possible. Such cases are manifold. In many trades, the skill and ability of the worker will still play an important part. The quality of the commodity produced depending on this. In cases where we deal with a semi-artisan type of industry, the employer often prefers to pay his highly skilled workers by the week, by time. Not striving for quantity, the worker produces each commodity very carefully. The capitalist gains in the quality of the commodity what he loses in quantity. In other cases, on the contrary, the worker becomes a mere appendage to the machine. The quantity of goods produced depends entirely upon the speed of operation of the machine. In such cases, also the capitalist prefers time work. Piecework. On the other hand, various methods of piecework are employed in all cases where the capitalist wants to interest the worker in producing as great a quantity of commodities as possible. Piecework saves the employer the necessity of supervising the work of his employees. Making the wages depend on the quantity produced, piecework assures that most intensive labor on the part piecework assures the most intensive labor on the part of the workers. As a rule, piecework is possible in those industries where it is easy to calculate or measure by weight, by piece, volume or length the quantity of commodities produced. Piecework under capitalism is the favourite method of increasing the exploitation of workers by increasing the intensity of their labour. Piecework rates are usually set according to the earnings of the most capable and the fastest workers. In order to make the necessary minimum wage, the other workers must strain their energies to the utmost. When the employer sees that a majority of the workers have increased their pay, he reduces the rate. The workers must then work even more intensively in order to earn their former wages. The piecework form of remuneration has an entirely different significance in the conditions obtaining in the USSR. There, the worker does not sell his work to a class of exploiters, but uses it in enterprises which are the property of the proletarian state. The wage which the worker receives in the USSR is a social allowance for labour and is in proportion for the quantity and quality of the labour expended. Piecework remuneration in the socialist economy of the Soviet Union is the best means of establishing conformity between the quantity and quality of the labour expended and the remuneration of the individual workman. It is a powerful lever in raising the productivity of labour and, in addition, the well-being of the working class. Therefore, it is entirely different from piecework under capitalism. Bonuses and profit sharing. Sometimes the capitalists pay out part of the wages in the form of a bonus. They figure that the bonus will stimulate special exertion on the part of the workers and make them work with the utmost intensity. An even greater deception is so-called profit sharing. 
the capitalist lowers the basic wage, with the excuse that the worker is supposedly also interested in having the business profitable. Then, under the guise of a share in the profits, only part of the wages previously deducted is returned to the worker. In the end, the worker sharing in the profits often receives less than the one working simply for wages. By this method, not only does the employer try to raise the intensity of labour to a high degree, but sometimes it induces a certain stratum of the more ignorant workers to keep away from the class movement of the proletariat and thus to serve as a support of capital. The Sweating System On the basis of piecework, the so-called sweating system exists particularly in the needle trades industry in England and America. Work is given out to be done at home at exceedingly low rates. The tailor, working under such a sweating system, must work literally day and night to avoid starvation. Scientific Organisation of Labour, the Tailor and Ford Systems Having bought the labour power of the proletarian, the employer tries to derive the utmost possible from it for himself. Of late, the cleverer and more able employers have begun to introduce the so-called scientific organisation of labour, which amounts to the following. Every kind of work done at the plant is studied in detail by experts who, after long observation and research, establish the most rational methods of doing this work. Methods of work are thus established which save the worker unnecessary motion and effort, all his tools are rationally arranged, etc., so that the worker is not distracted from his main work. Under these circumstances, all the energy of the worker, all the effort spent by him, goes towards useful work without any loss, is spent entirely on the operations which he has to perform. Thus the industry gets the greatest benefit from his work and the productivity of labour is greatly increased. The scientific organisation of labour is a great achievement in the rational utilisation of human effort. After the overthrow of capitalism, under conditions of a proletarian government, great possibilities are opened up for the scientific organisation of labour. But under the capitalist regime, the scientific organisation of labour, like all scientific achievements, is used by the capitalists in their own narrow class interests. Scientific organisation of labour is turned by the capitalists into one of the means of squeezing more surplus value out of the workers. One of the first to advocate the scientific organisation of labour was an American engineer, Taylor. His system, called the Taylor system, is used in many capitalist plants, increasing the surplus value. Greatly raising the productivity of labour Turning the workers into machines executing strictly calculated motions, the Taylor system leads to the squeezing of the last ounce of strength out of the workers, making invalids of them after a few years. The lowering of the piecework rates following the introduction of the Taylor system makes the workers' labour much harder for the same, and at times, lower wages. During post-war years, the subtle methods of exploitation used by the American automobile king, Henry Ford, became especially famous.
his methods of exploitation began to spread rapidly, not only in America, but also in the capitalist countries of Europe. The basic feature of the Ford system is production in a steady stream along a conveyor. By speeding up the conveyor, the work is speeded up and the intensity of labour increased. Whoever cannot keep up with the conveyor loses his job in the capitalist plant. Thus the capitalist turns every technical improvement into an instrument for the further impoverishment and enslavement of the proletariat, into an instrument for squeezing the very life out of the workers. Payment in kind or in money. Formerly, when a worker was hired in the village, he was seldom paid in money for his work. This was done in the following way. The worker was boarded with his employer, and in addition, at the end of the summer, he received a little grain. Here, the worker is paid in kind. He gets the necessary means of subsistence directly in exchange for his labour power. Such a simple transaction is similar to the barter of products, say, an axe for bread. When trade assumes such a simple character, it is perfectly evident that the value of the necessary means of subsistence is at the basis of the value of labour power. Payment, exclusively in kind, is very rare in capitalist industry. But even here, part of the wages is occasionally paid out in kind. This method of payment is usually only a convenient method for the capitalist to increase his profits at the expense of the workers. The company store belonging to the employer furnishes the worker with all kinds of shoddy goods at triple prices. The worker's real wages are thus greatly reduced. Workers' organisations, therefore, always struggle against such a practice. Sometimes, the capitalists try to achieve the same end, a decrease in the wages of the workers by making them buy goods at high prices, in a more subtle way. They assume control of all the stores in the workers' settlement or district, and the workers getting their wages in money are compelled to buy things at high prices just the same. Workers try to struggle against such exploitation by means of organising consumers' cooperatives. Nominal and real wages. In developed capitalist industry, except in rare cases, wages are paid in money. The worker sells his labour power and, as with the sale of any other commodity, gets its price in the form of a definite sum of money. However, the worker does not need the money for itself, but only as a means of getting the things he requires. Receiving his definite wages, the worker buys the things he needs. He pays the prices for them that prevail on the market at the time. But we know that the level of commodity prices does not remain unchanged. The purchasing power of money changes under the influence of various causes. If a gold standard exists in the country, the prices may rise because gold becomes cheaper. With a decrease in the value of gold, the purchasing power of money falls. When paper currency is issued in great quantities, the prices of commodities suffer great and rapid changes. Following the fall in the purchasing power of money, which almost always accompanies the circulation of a paper currency. Hence, if we wish to compare the wages of workers in several cases, 
it is not enough to know only how much money they receive in each case. It is also necessary to know how much goods can be bought with the money in each case. We must not merely compare the nominal rates of wages, and by the nominal rate of wages, we mean the amount of money received by the worker. We must also take into consideration the purchasing power of the money received. Only then can we establish exactly the real wages, which can be measured by the quantity of use values that can be purchased for the given sum of money in the given place. Wages of skilled workers. Everyone knows that workers in different trades receive different rates of wages. Highly skilled workers receive much higher wages than unskilled workers who have no special technical training. Usually, the greater the skill, the higher the wages. Different branches of industry require workers of different skill. Hence the wages of workers in different industries are not the same. Besides the difference in the rates of pay for workers in different industries, there is a difference in the rates of pay for workers of different skill in the same industry. The skilled worker is paid more than the semi-skilled, the semi-skilled worker more than the common labourer. What is the reason for such differences in the rates of wages of workers according to skill? It is not difficult to understand this. Anyone can perform unskilled labour, but the skilled worker must go through a definite period of learning the trade, must spend much time and effort to obtain this skill. If there are no differences in the rates of pay, no one would want to spend the time and energy to learn a trade. No one would try to obtain a definite degree of skill. However, no amount of skill saves a worker from inhuman, incessant exploitation under capitalism. The introduction of new machinery generally makes great numbers of highly skilled workers superfluous. What was previously done by a highly skilled master, who had spent many years in acquiring his skill, is now done by a machine. Considerable sections of skilled workers become superfluous and are thrown out of employment. In order not to starve to death, they are compelled to do unskilled labour at much lower pay. The level of wages in the various capitalist countries. The level of wages in the various capitalist countries is not the same. There are very great differences in this among the various countries. These differences are due to many causes. It would be ridiculous to think that capitalists in one country are kinder in their relations to the workers than those in others. As a matter of fact, capitalists everywhere try to lower wages to the lowest possible limits. But conditions in different capitalist countries vary considerably. Different countries have different histories. In America, for instance, capitalism developed under circumstances where a shortage of labour was experienced rather than a superfluity of it. An abundance of free land for some time gave emigrants from European countries the opportunity of settling on the land. In older capitalist countries, the working class organised earlier 
to offer resistance to the capitalists. In the more advanced capitalist countries, the intensity of labour, as well as the degree of average skill of the workers, is very high. All these circumstances gave rise to the different levels of wages in different capitalist countries. Thus, for instance, if we take wages in England as 100, the wages, the average hourly rate, in other advanced capitalist countries on the eve of the imperialist war were as follows. England, 100. Germany, 75. France, 64. The USA, 240. According to other calculations, the average yearly wages of workers in various countries in 1900 to 1907 in dollars were as follows. USA, 463. England, 258. Germany, 237. Austria, 167. Russia, 97. Japan, 55. In post-war years, we also see considerably different rates of wages in the various capitalist countries. Here are figures showing the differences in real wages in various large cities of the most important countries. The following figures show the conditions existing in January 1929 and are based on the level of real wages in London in 1924, which is taken as 100. Philadelphia, 206. Dublin, 106. London, 105. Stockholm, 93. Amsterdam, 88. Berlin, 77. Madrid, 57. Brussels, 52. Milan, 50. Rome, 44. It is understood that wages are particularly low in those countries where capitalism has only recently begun to develop. Primitive accumulation in these countries ruins the peasantry and artisans, throwing them into the army of those seeking employment. In the colonies, the living standard of the proletariat is extremely low. The workers in China, especially, are subject to the most brutal exploitation. The Chinese coolie, feeding himself on a handful of rice, often sleeping on the streets, or in the parks, and clothing himself in rags, is, in the eyes of the capitalists, the most exemplary worker in the world. The more brazen capitalists tell European workers to take an example from the Chinese coolie, to live as economically as he does. This kind of advice has been heard particularly often during the present times. Growth of Capitalist Exploitation as capitalism develops, the exploitation of the working class grows. The conditions under which the workers conduct their struggle about wages with the capitalists continually become more disadvantageous to the workers. As it develops, capitalism brings with it both a relative and an absolute impoverishment of the working class. The share of the capitalists grows bigger, the share of the workers smaller. The figures for several capitalist countries show this clearly. Let us take England. If we take the total values created in the country, the so-called national income, as 100, 
then the share that fell to the workers changed as follows. In the year 1843, amount of national income, 515 million. Amount of wages, 235 million. Workers' share of national income in percentage, 45.6. In 1860, amount of national income, 832 million. Amount of wages, 392 million. Making the workers' share of national income in percentage, 47.1. 1,874,000,000, 1, wages, 521, percentage, 41.4, 1,903,000,000, wages, 655,000,000, workers' share in percentage, 38.3, wages, 703 million, workers' share as a national percentage, 38.1. The share of the worker becomes steadily less. At the same time, of course, the share of the national income of the entire country, which goes to the capitalists, grows steadily greater. What the working class loses, the capitalists gain. In an article written before the World War, Lenin quotes the following figures showing the impoverishment of the working class. In Germany, for the period between 1880 and 1912, wages rose on average of 25%, while the cost of living for the same period rose by at least 40%. Lenin notes particularly that this took place in such a rich and advanced capitalist country as Germany, where the situation of the workers was incomparably better than that of the workers in pre-revolutionary Russia, because of the higher cultural level in Germany, the freedom to strike and form trade unions, and the comparative political freedom, where the membership in labour unions amounted to millions, and where there were millions of readers of the labour press. Lenin drew the following conclusion from this, quote, The worker is impoverished absolutely, i.e. grows actually poorer than before, is compelled to live worse, eat more sparingly, remain underfed, seek shelter in cellars and attics. The relative share of the workers in capitalist society, which is rapidly growing richer, becomes ever smaller, because the millionaires grow richer ever more rapidly. In capitalist society, wealth grows with unbelievable rapidity, alongside the impoverishment of the working masses." End quote. This is the situation in the richest capitalist countries of the world, where the capitalists can make concessions to the workers as they get tremendous profits from the colonies. Of course, in the more backward countries, in the colonies to which capital goes for easy profits, the exploitation of the workers proceeds even more rapidly. We thus see that capitalist exploitation steadily increases and that the gulf between the working class and the bourgeoisie becomes ever deeper. The opportunists in all countries continually talk of an abatement of the social contradictions, of the necessity for civil peace between the classes, of the possibility for the working class to improve its conditions, even under capitalism. The working class, however, grows poorer, not only relatively, in comparison with the boundless growth of the profits of the bourgeoisie, but absolutely. Even in the richest capitalist countries, the food of the workers becomes continually worse. They live in still more crowded quarters, 
experience ever greater want. At the same time, the intensity of labour of the workers increases steadily. The worker has to spend more energy for each hour of work than he had to spend formerly. The excessive intensity of labour, the continual whipping up, rapidly exhausts the organism of the worker. There can therefore not only be no talk about an abatement of class contradictions, but on the contrary, there is a constant sharpening of these contradictions. They grow inevitably. Unemployment and the Reserve Army of Labour With the growth of capitalism, unemployment increases and the so-called Reserve Army of Labour grows, furnishing hands to the capitalists in times when industry needs to be expanded or when the older workers refuse to work under the old conditions any longer. Let us see how this takes place. In its inception, capitalism finds a sufficient supply of potential wage labourers on the market. This supply is composed of ruined farmers, artisans and handicraftsmen who have lost their means of production. They are ready for work for the capitalist if he will only give them the means of continuing their existence. There must always be a definite reserve of free hands. Only on this condition can capitalist industry, based on the exploitation of wage labour, arise. What does the further development of capitalism lead to? We have already seen that developing capitalism crushes the small-scale production of the artisan and the handicraftsman by its competition. The peasants are also ruined, and many of them are forced, willy-nilly, to leave their homes and go into capitalist slavery. Capitalist industry grows, new plants and factories are opened up, absorbing new masses of workers. Ruining small-scale producers, capital attracts them to itself as wage labourers. Supplanting of workers by machinery. But together with this, another phenomenon appears. There is a continual process of technical improvement in production under capitalism. And what does this technical improvement mean? What is the significance of the new inventions? The significance is that they cheapen production, replacing human labour by machine work. Thus, with the development of technical improvements, fewer workers are needed to produce the same quantity of commodities. Machines supplant workers. Machines compel workers to labour more intensely. This also causes part of the workers to be thrown out of industry. Hence, at the dawn of capitalism, when the workers had not yet found out who their real enemy was, they often gave vent to their rage against existing conditions by attacking the machines. During strikes and times of unrest, the workers smashed machinery first of all, considering it to be the main cause for their terrible conditions. Introducing new machinery and throwing the workers who were supplanted by those machines onto the street, the capitalists continually create unemployment. Raising the intensity of labour, they also increase the number of unemployed. A definite number of workers become superfluous. These workers are unable to find any need for their labour they constitute the Industrial Reserve Army. The significance of this army is indeed great. The existence of a constant army of unemployed gives the capitalists 
a powerful weapon in their struggle against the working class. The unemployed are usually willing to go to work on any conditions. Threatened with starvation, they have no choice. The unemployed thus exert a downward pressure on the living standard of the proletarians who are employed. Another significance of the reserve army is that it furnishes free hands at any time when the conditions of the market require an expansion of industry. Then, many thousands of unemployed find work for themselves. Factories and plants increase the number of workers they employ. Unemployment temporarily decreases. But the introduction of new, improved methods throws thousands of workers onto the streets again. Thus, capitalism with one hand gives work to the masses of new workers coming from the ranks of the ruined, small-scale producers, and with the other, takes the last piece of bread from the mouths of thousands and tens of thousands of workers who have been supplanted by machines with the progress of capitalist technical improvements. The General Law of Capitalist Accumulation This constant replacement of workers by machinery, which is a result of capitalist development, creates what is known as a relative surplus population in capitalist countries. Hundreds of thousands of people yearly are compelled to immigrate from their countries as they become superfluous and left without the faintest hope of obtaining employment. During the post-war years, this situation has grown still worse. The countries to which the emigrants flowed have closed their doors and refuse admission. The existence and growth of the Industrial Reserve Army have a tremendous influence on the entire situation of the working class. Poverty increases. The uncertainty of what the next day will bring is ever-present and wages fall. The working class produces surplus value with its labour, but it goes to the capitalist class. Part of the surplus value obtained from the working class, the capitalists consume and thus destroy. The rest, they add to their original capital. If the capitalist originally had $100,000, and during the year he has succeeded in squeezing out of the workers $20,000 in profits, he will add about half this sum to the original capital for the next year. In this case, his capital for the next year will already be $110,000. He has increased his capital, has accumulated $10,000. Accumulation of capital, therefore, is the addition of surplus value to capital. The growth of capital as a result of accumulating surplus value is enormous. The mass of surplus value squeezed out of the working class grows ever greater as capitalism develops. The mass of surplus value accumulated by the capitalists and which goes to increase their capital grows apace. Thus, accumulation of capital brings with it the growth of the wealth of a handful of capitalists. The surplus value created by the labour of the working class becomes a source of the increasing power of the exploiters. With the accumulation of capital, the degree of exploitation of the workers increases. Thus, under capitalism, the working class 
with its own labour, creates the conditions for an ever greater degree of its own exploitation. With the accumulation of capital, the living conditions of the working class become steadily worse. The degree of their exploitation increases. All this is an inevitable result of capitalist accumulation. The more capital the capitalists accumulate, the more they expand production, introduce new machines, the more poverty and unemployment spread across the working class. This is the general law of capitalist accumulation, discovered by Marx, and it is of immense significance for an understanding of capitalism, for an understanding of the direction in which capitalism develops. Marx defines the general law of capitalist accumulation as follows, quote, the greater the social wealth, the functioning capital, the extent and energy of its growth, and, therefore, also the absolute mass of the proletariat and the productiveness of its labour, the greater is the industrial reserve army. The same causes which develop the expansive power of capital develop also the labour power at its disposal. The relative mass of the industrial reserve army increases, therefore, with the potential energy of wealth. But the greater the reserve army in proportion to the active labour army, the greater is the mass of a consolidated surplus population, whose misery is in inverse ratio to its torment of labour. The more extensive, finally, Lazarus layers of the working class and the industrial reserve army, the greater is official pauperism. This is the absolute general law of capitalist accumulation. End quote. Marx further says about this law, quote, Within the capitalist system, all methods for raising the social productiveness of labour are brought about at the cost of the individual labourer. All means of the development of production transform themselves into means of domination over and exploitation of the producers. They mutilate the labourer into a fragment of a man, degrade him to the level of an appendage of a machine, destroy every remnant of charm in his work and turn it into a hated toil. They estrange from him the potentialities of the labour process in the same proportion as science is incorporated in it as an independent power. They distort the conditions under which he works, subject him during the labour process to a despotism the more hateful for its meanness. They transform his lifetime into working time. But all methods of the production of surplus value are at the same time methods of accumulation. And every extension of accumulation becomes again a means for the development of those methods. It follows, therefore, that in proportion as capital accumulates, the lot of the labourer, be his payment high or low, must grow worse. The law, finally, that always equilibrates the relative surplus population or industrial reserve army to the extent and energy of accumulation. This law rivets the labourer to capital. It establishes an accumulation of misery, corresponding with accumulation of capital. Accumulation of wealth at one pole is, therefore, at the same time accumulation of misery, agony of toil, slavery, ignorance, brutality, mental degradation at the opposite pole, i.e. 
on the side of the class that produces its own product in the form of capital. End quote. Quote from Marx Capital, Volume 1. Impoverishment of the working class. Thus we see that to the extent that capital is accumulated, the conditions of the working class must become worse. This general worsening of the conditions of the proletariat is brought about not only by means of lowering wages, unemployment spreads and becomes more frequent, more often affecting each individual worker, each member of the worker's family. The labour of the worker becomes more intensive and as a result the worker ages sooner and often becomes an invalid. The age limit at which a worker is thrown out of capitalist enterprises becomes lower and lower. Capital buys out small groups of workers which it turns into its faithful servants. A privileged upper section of the proletariat is created. A worker's aristocracy. The capitalists pay certain groups of skilled workers highly out of the tremendous profits derived from the colonies at the expense of an even more brutal exploitation of the vast majority of the working class. This upper section of the proletariat, bought and debauched by capital, furnishes the main forces for the traitorous social democratic parties which are the most faithful bulwarks of capitalist supremacy. A great part of the highly paid sections of the workers, however, experience a constant insecurity in their positions, an uncertainty about the morrow. Capitalism inevitably leads to a worsening of their conditions. Impoverishment of the proletariat and unemployment under conditions of crisis. The impoverishment of the working class reaches its utmost limit in times of crisis. A crisis exposes and sharpens all the contradictions of capitalism. The proletariat is reduced to the most extreme degree of impoverishment. Every crisis calls for a curtailment of production and throws millions of workers onto the street. The wages of those who remain in work are reduced. The present crisis is the deepest and sharpest of all crises ever experienced by capitalism. The capitalist system, dying and decaying while still alive, dooms tens of millions of people to unprecedented tortures. Unemployment has reached monstrous proportions. To the unemployed we must add the vast army of those who work part-time and receive a correspondingly infinitely low wage. The present crisis brought a colossal reduction in wages in all capitalist countries without exception. Attempting to shift the entire burden of the crisis onto the shoulders of the working class, the capitalists of various countries vie with one another in reducing wages, bringing them to pauper limits, making it impossible for the worker to satisfy even his most pressing needs. The living standards of the working class, even in the richest capitalist countries, has gone down during this crisis in the most unbelievable fashion. A tremendous number of facts bear witness to this. A journalist who investigated conditions of the miners in England writes, If you should visit the home of a miner in South Wales or Durham, you would find that all the furniture that was bought in better days has been sold. 
A border has been taken in to help meet the rent payments, but most probably this border has lost his job and cannot pay a farthing. If the father of the family works, the son is sure to be unemployed, or the reverse, if the son works, the father has lost his job. Everything that could possibly be pawned has gone. There is hardly a miner who can allow himself the luxury of getting any clothes for himself, his wife or his children. They can only change their clothes if they happen to buy some old rags which the mother can somehow patch up. Once libraries were built and theatres opened in miners' settlements on funds furnished by the miners themselves. Now the libraries can purchase no books and the theatres are closed. In certain other branches of industry in England, the workers are in even worse state. An even more hopeless picture is presented by the textile workers of Lancashire. Even when working at full capacity, i.e. four looms to every weaver, the average wages of a weaver in the last few years did not exceed 31 shillings and sixpence a week. But in most cases, a weaver works on only two looms, and in Beverly, for instance, the weekly wages of a weaver vary from 15 to 20 shillings. These wages can be made, however, only if good raw material is available. Under the conditions of the crisis, the employers use all kinds of inferior raw material, hence the wages of the weavers fall more because of this. Data collected in the course of many official investigations speak eloquently about the poverty of the Lancashire weavers. Thus, for example, in 1931, investigation in Wigan showed that hundreds of workers live in houses condemned by the City Building Commission as unfit for human habitation. In Bolton, such a commission established that most of the houses inhabited by workers are in the immediate vicinity of the city dumps, garbage heaps, filth or cattle yards surrounded by mountains of manure. In the United States, in the years of the crisis, the average weekly wage in industry was reduced as follows. Years 1929, wage $28.5 in 1930, $25.8 in 1931, down to $22.6 in 1932, down to $17.1 and 1933 maintained at $17.7. The year 1933 seems to show a certain increase in wages, but it is only an apparent increase. In point of fact, the increase in the cost of living in this period was considerably higher than the increase in nominal wages. According to the greatly understated official figures, the cost of living rose by 7% in 1933 in comparison with 1932. But according to the figures of the Labour Research Bureau, Food prices rose by 18% in 1933. The notorious National Recovery Act, passed by the Roosevelt government, brought about a still further worsening in the conditions of life of the workers. In fascist Germany, the conditions of the workers are going from bad to worse. Letters of German workers give an idea of the virtual, virtually penal conditions which the fascists have introduced into the enterprises. This, for example, is what one working girl writes from the factories of the famous international firm of Siemens to a German paper abroad. In the press shop of the small factories of Siemens Start, the working conditions are terrible. With five working days per week on piecework, wages reach 15 marks at the very most. There are instances where a girl is only on four days a week and in this time draws nine marks all told. Under such conditions, there are in all only two marks left to live on, seeing that five marks go in rent and two marks for fares. 
The speed of the work is frightful. The majority of the women cannot keep up with the conditions of the piecework. The time needed for bringing and sending back material, for figuring out the work cards, for seeing to defects in the machine, for having breakfast, etc., is not taken into account. The following figures show the degree of impoverishment of the working class in the United States during the crisis. The index numbers of those employed for wages in industry and the total sum paid them in wages for the years of the crisis, index number 1923 to 25 equals 100 are given below. So compared to 1923 to 25, uh, in May 1929, the number of workers employed had increased to 105.3% and the amount paid out in wages to 112.9%. Then comes the crisis. In May 1930, number of workers employed drops to 94.8% and amount paid out in wages to 95.4%. The following year, in 1931, the employed workforce falls to 80.1% compared to the 23 to 25 index of 100 and the amount paid them in wages to 734 And by May 1932, the number of workers employed is down to 63.4% and the amount paid out in wages to 46.8%. From these figures, it can be seen that in May 1929, i.e. before the crisis, the number of workers employed was nearly the same as in 1923-25, to 25, but the wages were somewhat higher. Then a catastrophic fall begins, in which wages fall at a much more rapid rate than the number of workers employed. This means that the sum paid out in wages falls for two reasons. One, because of unemployment, and two, because of the reduction in the wages of those employed. For three years of the crisis, the number employed was reduced 30%, while wages fell 60%. Thus, wages were cut in half during this period. In the United States, the living conditions of the millions of unemployed who receive no help from the government are particularly horrible. Thousands of unemployed, dispossessed for non-payment of rent, tramp the roads, erecting camps near the larger cities. These camps of the unemployed in America are called jungles, and later were referred to as Hoovervilles. One bourgeois magazine described a camp located into the, in the swamps near Stockton, California, as follows. When we saw the camp, the writer says, smoke was rising from the tents erected by various groups of unemployed. Every little group was busily preparing its food. The whole picture was fantastic. Here, from where one could see the city with its stores, its grain elevators filled with grain at one end, and the sugar refinery at the other, with its warehouses filled with provisions all along the docks, these people, willing to work, were raking in the refuse thrown out from the warehouses, were cleaning half-rotten carrots, onions or beans, and cooking them in old tin cans which they had picked up. The authors end their description of this picture of destitution with the following words. We have always been taught, in the good old American way, that ours is a free country. It is really free. These people are free to choose any one of three alternatives, to steal, to die of starvation, or to turn into animals feeding on refuse. The bourgeois journalists forgot one other alternative, the revolutionary struggle of the proletariat against the domination of capital. An unprecedented increase in the number of suicides, 
the phenomenal spread of all kinds of diseases, innumerable cases of death from starvation, these are the results of the inhuman living conditions into which capital forces millions of people. Mortality and disease amongst the children proceeded especially rapidly. But if such is the degree of impoverishment of the proletariat in the richer capitalist countries, the conditions in the backward capitalist countries are still worse. In this respect, Poland offers a graphic example. Recently, the result of an investigation of 204 Warsaw families of unemployed was published. This investigation was conducted by a bourgeois organisation that is far from sympathetic to communism. The families investigated were those of skilled workers. The report of the investigation reads... It must be stated that in the vast majority of cases the food was below starvation minimum. Here are examples. A Mulder's family, consisting of four people, spends 12 zloty, about a dollar and a half, a week on food. They eat twice a day, potatoes, cabbage, bread. They do not buy meat or milk at all. A tailor's family, consisting of six persons, had not eaten anything in three days at the time the commission visited it. There was also no fuel no kerosene. In another case, a family of four persons had not had a cooked meal for a period of three weeks. Their only food was bread and tea. A family of an unemployed worker lives on the earnings of the wife who peddles pretzels on the street. Her earnings amount to one to one and a half zloty, about 15 cents a day. And this is the only source of income for a family consisting of 10 persons. Summing up, the report states, The principal food of the unemployed is potatoes and cabbage, more rarely bread and tea, occasionally cereal, very rarely macaroni, etc., vegetables. Of the 204 families investigated, meat is eaten only by 20 families once a week. Matters are even worse with respect to clothes. The report says the greatest shortage is felt in shoes and outer clothing. For instance, an unemployed baker's family consisting of six persons has no shoes whatever. When he leaves the house, the father ties a pair of soles to the feet with string. The children do not leave the house. In another case, two children have one coat. The mother takes the younger one to school, takes off his coat, runs home and dresses the older boy. The same procedure is repeated when the children have to come home from school. About the terrible housing conditions of the unemployed, the report tells the following. Most of the homes investigated do not satisfy the most elementary requirements of hygiene. Here are some characteristic examples. The home is in a cellar. Water drips down the walls. The floor of the hallway leading to the home is always under three centimetres of water. Three adults and four children live in this room. In a number of cases, more than ten persons occupy one room. Of 929 persons questioned, only 193 sleep in separate beds. This includes 11 persons who sleep on the floor, 14 children sleeping in cribs, and 9 children sleeping on trunks, benches, or chairs. The majority sleeps 2, 3, and more persons in a bed. In 9 cases it was established that 5 persons sleep in one bed, and in 3 cases even 6 in a bed. Despite certain increases in industrial production, the number of unemployed in Poland in the present year is higher than in the previous year. In January 1934, the number of unemployed on the register of the Labour Exchange was 410,000. In the spring of 1934, it was 350,000. 
but even according to the evidence of the bourgeois newspapers, the actual number of unemployed exceeded a million and a half. The total wages actually paid out to the workers in big industry amounted, according to official data, to 1.645 billion zloty in 1929, and only to 737.8 million zloty in 1932 a curtailment of 55%. There are no official figures for the years 1933-34 as yet at the time of writing of this book. The eight-hour day has been abolished. A series of new fascist laws have deprived the working class of its small gains in the field of unemployment and health insurance, accident and disablement benefits, etc., Capitalist rationalisation, that is, the ruthless sweating system, encouraged by the government and introduced by the employers in the factories and mines, has resulted in an unprecedented increase of accidents and industry. It is sufficient to state that in the mining industry alone, in the years 1927 to 1932, according to official figures, 1,039 miners were killed, 7,471 seriously injured, and 97,331 Polish miners sustained general injuries out of a total number of slightly over 100,000 men working in the coal industry in these years. In Japan, in the coal industry, the daily wage of a man in 1930 was 1.72 yen, and in 1933, 1.11 yen. The wage of a woman in 1930 was 1.52 yen, and in 1933, 0.73 yen. Children working as helpers received from 5 to 10 yen per month. In the textile industry of Japan, where girls often work as long as 15 hours a day, they receive from 3 to 5 shillings a week and a place in the factory barracks. The following eloquent item appeared in a Japanese newspaper in December 1933. A group of ten girls were detained by the police. In spite of the cold, they were wandering about in their summer apparel. At the examination, it transpired that they had run away from a weaving mill, as they could no longer endure the arduous regime of a working day of fifteen hours without a break, and the bad conditions. When they were advised to return to the mill, the girls replied, they would rather die. Similar news items in the Japanese papers are frequently seen. Thanks for listening to Proletarian Radio. We aim to bring you the best Marxist analysis on current affairs, revolutionary history and theory. Do like, comment, subscribe, and share our content to help us reach the widest possible audience. We are a small organization with limited resources, and we need worker support if we are to grow and fulfill our mission. If you are able to make a one-off or regular donation, no matter how small, please visit our website 